Alrighty, guys. Thanks for tuning in to The Girl, The Beard, and The Grim. My name is Aaron. I'm Bear. And uh, we have quite an episode for you today. It is about Dr. Harold Shipman, um, possibly the original Dr. Death. The original, like, before the Netflix guy. Yes. Well, Peacock Network. But, yes, before the Doctor in Texas. Okay, so it's not on Netflix. No. Oh, well, on whatever streaming service. One of the many thousand streaming services, but yeah. So, um, this case takes place in the UK, um, and he was caught in 1998, finally, after a 20-year span. 20 years this guy was killing people. 20 years. So, he, you know, is considered one of the most prolific serial killers in the UK, for sure, and pretty high up there if you look worldwide. So, like, he's, like, second only to, like, dictators, like, the really bad, bad, bad. Yeah, like, they estimate between 250 victims and possibly up to 450 victims. This guy has killed somewhere between 200 and 400 people. Yes. All patients of his. Throughout his career. Wow. That is mm-hmm. that is quite the body count. Yeah, absolutely. So so we'll just get right in. So Harold Shipman was born on uh, January 14th, 1946 in Bestwood, Nottingham, United Kingdom. Where in the world is that? That is going to be in near Hyde um, in Manchester County. Okay. Okay. And I and the reason I bring up Hyde is because in the sixties there was also two serial killers at that time known as uh Myra and Ian Henley. And they did some pretty awful things to children. <laughs> so so <laughs> apparently this area of UK was just pumping out serial killers left and right. Yes. Um so which really kinda sucks is they're really like small quiet towns. And it's just those are always the know, ones full of nice working class people and have some bad seeds in there that are going to take them out. Apparently, that's the thing is it's always the small little towns. You watch mm-hmm. any horror movie, it's some sleepy little town. It always is. All right, and then there's some psychopath in it. That's how and, it works. And we'll actually kind of find out because of how trusting everybody was in this community is actually how he was able to kill as many as he did and go on for as long as he did. So he killed a lot of people. Because other people were like, oh, yeah, no, he's he's so-and-so. Everyone knows him. Well, that and it was it was really like, well, he's a doctor and a doctor that takes care of our community. Who are we to question him and his actions? Gotcha. So, well, we'll get there. Definitely for sure. So, okay. So his profession was an English general practitioner, which was what we would call a PCP here in the States. All right. Um. Yes. So, like I said before, he has estimated 250 victims. That's That seems to be more of the correct number. I think the person that reported that it could be up to the 400s was really just kind of speculating on every unsolved <laughs> case kind of thing. Right, right. You know, could be the him. But, but I'll also touch on he's only found guilty of 15 of these murders. And it's really like the last 15 that he that he committed that they end up getting him on so out of the hundreds of people this man killed mm-hmm. he only gets convicted yeah of a small number uh, is it a statute of limitations or is it just lack of evidence both okay yeah um yeah just a lot he's the worst all right he's just the worst so alrighty. so we're gonna go in there's a little bit of a brief history. There's not too much about his, like, childhood. Right. Um, so, we'll just kind of get into it and see. Um, yeah. <laughs> All right. So, Harold was the middle child of three. Okay. His mother's name was Vera, and um, his father's name was Harold Shipman Sr. Okay. So, um, he was considered a quiet, smart kid, and he just loved to play rugby and be with his family. Um, that's That's all I could really find about him. A lot of people, like his old classmates that were interviewed, even they were like, yeah, if he wasn't on the rugby field, then he was at home 
with his family and really kind of helping take care of his mother because she was dying of cancer for pretty much all of his childhood. Gotcha. So foreshadowing. Right. And um, he was actually very close to his mother, too. I think that's kind of like a, a middle child thing. I think moms tend to, if it's not the baby, it's the middle child that they're loving on. But, right. Um, so she had uh, was battling cancer for many years, and it was lung cancer, actually. Um, and so she actually, at home, used morphine injections to manage her pain and just making her comfortable in general um, when she was just living out her last years. Right. So we kind of end up kind of finding out that that ends up being his MO, Dr. Shipman's and later like with his victims. Okay. Um, and so Vera Shipman died when Harold was just 17 in 1963. Apparently she died on like a Friday. And so his classmates all reported that that following Monday, he showed up to work, or showed up to school <laughs> and had been in school all day and all this stuff. And they were, you know, talking like kids do. What'd you do this weekend? You know, all that good fun stuff. And he was like, well, my mom died. Just and, very, very matter of factly. Right. And, and as if it was like saying, well, I went to the movies this weekend. <laughs> wow. And so his classmates were just kind of really taken aback about his lack of grief about it and just how he was just nonchalant and then it yeah. was like oh and by the way the funeral like Keeban went well you know. but to be fair i mean you know if, if you've known for years that someone's gonna die obviously i mean it's not a surprise when it happens absolutely especially i, I feel i've personally never gone through this but i i think you grieve the person throughout their dying yeah you know so like you said when it comes it's probably more of a relief for you that they're not in pain anymore you're not having to see them inject themselves with morphine at home just to be able to make it through the day <laughs> yeah well and especially in, in a process of years mm -hmm. she spent years dying he's had a lot of time to process the fact that she's going to die absolutely so uh just a couple years later after his mom well it's a couple of years actually a year 1964 he ends up graduating high school and begins college at the university of leeds Okay. Um, and particularly the School of Medicine. Right. Um, at this time, he ended up meeting his future wife, Primrose. That's a name. She was <laughs> she was 17 at the time um, that they met, and he was actually 20. Okay. Um, and so a few months into their relationship, old Primrose found out that she was pregnant. Oh. Mm -hmm. And her family did not like Harold. Oof. Did not care for him. So, um, against their wishes and everything, they snuck off in the middle of the night and got married on November 5th, 1966. Okay. So, they've got this child on the way. They're married. And really, that's all I could find out about that as well. There's just whoever, and maybe it's his family and it might be his children. Because even like his wife and children are all still living Maybe they're trying to keep all this under wraps. They're not giving a whole lot about the history of Harold. But, well, that and yeah. I feel like records in England, like they're not, they're not as record happy as we are here in the U.S. Where mm -hmm. it's like, oh, we need to keep records on this, that, and the other. Oh, we, you know, you know, the family tree and you know who did what and when. We're very big on that in the U.S., but I don't feel like the U.K. is really big on that, hmm. especially. So. In 1967, they welcomed their first child. Her name was Sarah. A few years later, in 1971, they welcomed Christopher, their first son. And then 1979, so there's like an eight-year difference there. They ended up having their third child, David. And then in 1982, they had Sam, their uh, third son. Gotcha. Um, and so that's all, like I said, all I could find out about his children. They were all given new identities. We'll find, you know, after his trial was completed and everything. So gotcha. Okay. It right, really right. just kind of lists like they had, this was their original name. This is when they were born and there's not like everything else has been wiped away. <laughs> yeah. So that could be another reason why the, it, it's hard to find records right. because once someone enters with witness protection here in the U S they cease to exist. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And there's actually been some speculation on that. You say that, that, um, they actually all did move to the United States to have a new life. So 
I'm sure. I'm sure that's also. <laughs> I mean, I probably would too. I would definitely have to move yeah. away. Oh, for sure. <laughs> from the you country know, that we live. It in. doesn't matter if you change your name and your identity. The fact is, if you still live in the same country, it's yeah. a much smaller country than the U.S. is. Yes, you're bound to run into somebody you know. Yes. So Harold um, graduated in 1970 from Leeds University. Right. Um, and he, at that time, he was a doctor. It was time to go start his residency. Right. And so he went to the Pontefract General Infirmary. That's what it was called. So that would just be like a, a care now. Gotcha. Okay. So, so a, an urgent care. So okay. you're, they're going to see a little bit of everything there, you know, and that's, so that's where he started working. Um, and so shortly after he started working there, he started having these mysterious blackouts. He would pass out at home. He would pass out at work, um, even wrecked his car. Like, wow. and so the doctor, other doctors that he worked with tried to, do exams on him and figure out what was going on. And they ended up diagnosing him with epilepsy. Okay. Seems now, a little bit of an odd. I was going to say, I find that odd as somebody that's in their late twenties. Your epilepsy is going to show up earlier in life. If you really have epilepsy. Yeah. That, that doesn't quite make sense. I don't know if I maybe trust these doctors. <laughs> judgment. Well, I mean, you know, we've seen how the story plays mm-hmm. out. So, yeah, probably not. So he, at this time, his driver's license was taken away as well. With, and um, so his wife had to end up driving him everywhere. Uh, his doctors, co-workers, all that could explain why he was having these episodes, but just kept telling him it's epilepsy. And that's how they were treating it. Right. Um, a few years later, he seemed like he was getting better. Um, and in 1974, he went to work at the Abraham... Armorod <laughs> Medical Center. Okay. Please, please don't kill me about these names because crazy. And yeah. so this is his actual first job as a true general practitioner because he's finished all of his training. So he's not like a resident anymore. He is right. He is an attending physician, as we yes. would say here in the U.S. Yes. Um, seemed like everything was going great until one of the doctors um, there because he. It was this big practice of like 11 other doctors, including him. Right. Um, ended up finding out that he was forging scripts of Demerol. Oh, well, that's not good. And how he would do that is because at this particular practice, they saw a lot of geriatric patients, a lot of nursing home patients. Right. This was a time when you had your doctor made house calls. Yeah. You couldn't make it into the office. Oh, he would pick up the medication for you, deliver it to your house. And so that's what he was doing. He was overscribing these nursing home patients, Demerol, for pain. And he was like, I'll swing by the pharmacy and pick it up on my way to meet you or <laughs> check you yeah. out at home and just would skim off the top what he wanted and then give them the rest. Gotcha. Now, is Demerol, is it, is it like, does it come in a pill form or is it an injectable or how does that work? This particular one was, um, I, I know it's both ways, but okay. I had saw in the in my research that it was pills. Okay, because I was going to say, and, it seems kind of hard to skim off injectable Demerol. Right. But yeah. yeah, pills definitely make sense. Yeah, absolutely. So he um, couldn't deny it. He was caught. Yeah. Um, he, so he pled guilty to those charges and was only forced to pay... A 600-pound fine and attend outpatient drug rehab. So he mm. could just pop in, similar to, I assume, Narcotics Anonymous, you know. Right. now. Hi, my name's Harold. I have a Demerol problem. <laughs> right. Now, does what, what year does this happen in? So this is in 1974. So, 74, I mean, 600 pounds, while it's not crazy money, I mean, it's still definitely worth more then than it is now. Mm-hmm. So, you know... Because I can't exactly convert it off the top of my head, but let's just equate it to six hundred dollars U.S. Six hundred dollars U.S. in the seventies was a lot more than you know six hundred bucks could get you today. Mm-hmm. So you know I can see that being a decent decent fine. Yeah. So this, of course, he lost the job. Well, at this obviously. Um, and so he kind of bounced around a little bit here and there. He ended up finding. A really good position at uh, Donnie Brook Medical Center in Hyde, 
So there's that town again, Hyde. Okay. And this was in 1977. And they were reported saying that they really liked his honesty because he came right in and said, I had a Demerol pro- problem. I went through the program and I'm sober. Right. And um, I guess all the doctors on the board were like, well, that's great. He didn't, he wasn't trying to hide anything. That and they, they knew of. <laughs> right. Um, and they also loved that he just seemed like he was fantastic with these older patients, especially women. They just seemed to just eat him up. He was very charismatic. And so that was going to be really good for the practice and retention right. of patients. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, he continued at this practice into the 80s. It was about 12 years in total that he was at this practice. Um, and then in 1993 is when he opened his own, what they call a surgery. And when I first read that, I was like, why do I keep hearing this word surgery? Because surgery in the United States is not. It's like an operation. <laughs> it's yeah, an it's... operation. You know, you're going to a surgery center. You're going to be cut open. But apparently surgery in the UK is just what they refer to as your primary care clinic. When you, okay. The, the, where you go see your doctor. So, so like just his practice and yeah. they call it a surgery. Yeah. Okay. So, which you'll also kind of find very strange as we get a little bit further into this is like, he was doing these things to some of these women, like in his regular doctor practice office, like, but I'll get there just to kind of, you know, so just think about, you know, these things. This is just a regular doctor's office kind of thing. Um, So this, of course, allowed him to go alone and do what he wanted to do to his patients. Because if you remember, they're estimating that he started all of this in 1978, which is after he started at Donnybrook Medical Center in 1977. That's when he started killing off patients. So they're, they're running under the assumption that up to this point, he hasn't killed any patients. Right. And that as far as, murder he hasn't done that yet Mm -hmm. right so i mean nobody is really going to question and and this is you know what everybody brought up as well as like if you have a doctor that his primary patient is geriatric they're all they're gonna die at some point so Oh, oh yeah sure it does make sense that his patient's are dying but oh that's because harold sees the old people yeah yeah so yeah so he goes off 1993 allows him to go out on his own and he doesn't have to answer or possibly be caught by all the other doctors he works with. And it kind of came as a shock to them because they had a really good thing going for the last 12 years with him. And he actually ended up taking 3000 patients with him when he left. Wow. That is a lot of patients. So they, they just decided to leave the doctor's office. They've been seeing Mm -hmm. forever to follow Dr. Shipman. Yes. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So that's when it really started ramping up over the next five years, um, up until 1998 when he gets caught. So really when the investigators looked back from when he went out on his own to 1993 until 1998, I mean, the man was signing like over a hundred death certificates a year, which at first, I didn't really think that was a high number, but then I really think about 52 weeks in a year, he's signing up to two death certificates on average a every week. week. <laughs> that's, yeah, even <laughs> if you work with people that are, you know, terminally ill, that's a very yeah. quick rate of people passing. Especially because when I also thought about it, he is in a private practice. This isn't like a hospital those are hospital kind of numbers, you know, where you've got yeah. people coming into the ER, car crashes, you know, all kinds of yeah, things like that. Yeah, cancer treatments, right. you know, major surgeries, things like that. Yes, so so just absolutely crazy. But so in 1998, everything would end up changing for Harold. And, I mean, got to be a good thing because God knows as charismatic as this man was and sounded, how much longer he would have kept going. Oh, yeah, no. I mean, yeah. it, if you've got a good thing going, you you keep it going, I'm assuming, right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. So, so in 1998, that was when he got figured out. Mm-hmm. How did he get figured out? Because he'd, he'd done it successfully for five straight years. Mm-hmm. So this really took the work of good people in the community that were starting to put two and two together of, like, the numbers aren't really matching up. 
we do see a lot of death certificates, you know, the coroner's office, all these things. So it was just crazy. But so in March 1998, Linda Reynolds of the Brook Surgery in Hyde um, expressed some concerns to the coroner, John Pollard. All right. She had told John that she was worried about the high death rate coming from Dr. Shipman's patients um, and that most of them seemed to be cremations for elderly women, which when it's a cremation certificate, um, it has to be signed by the coroner, the doctor and the funeral home. Right. And so she's like, the three of us sure seem to be meeting a lot, if not a few times a week. <laughs> so... Now, this woman, she works with the funeral home? It was another um, surgery center. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so, because it, from what I gathered, and this is a little muddy, it seemed like he was doing a lot of house calls, even to patients that weren't in his practice. A so, lot of people just loved him, and like word of mouth being like, oh, you have a problem. Here's Doctor Shipman's number, and he'll come out to the house and look at you. So there were people that were that were patients of other doctors that he would see. Yeah, just out, mm-hmm. you know, out and about. Yeah, absolutely. So um, these concerns were initially blown off because a lot of people were like, "Why are we to question him?" It got brought up again. He sees elderly geriatric patients. Yeah. They're going to die. People people that are, you know, they're not mm-hmm. in the prime of their life. They're they're getting near the end of their life. Mm-hmm. It's not unreasonable. Yes. And he, and he, I'm assuming, sees an absurd amount of people. If he took 3,000 patients from another practice. And it's just going to grow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, by now he's probably seeing, you know, 10,000 patients a year. So yeah. to have 100 die out of 10,000, that's not that high of a death right. rate. So, this did get some attention of the Great Manchester Police, um, but their investigation really sucked. After a few months, they only interviewed Dr. Shipman one time, and they went ahead and closed due to lack of evidence on April 17, 1998. So, they looked into him and they went... Mm-hmm. They're like, he's he's a doctor. He's fantastic. Yeah, so they basically talked to him and said, hey, uh, we've noticed a lot of your patients are dying. He see, he's like, yeah, I see a lot of old people. And they're like, oh, well, that explains it. And not only that, it was, you know, some of these um, inspectors, you know, what they're called yeah. in the UK, would be like, well, he, he treated my mom. He's treated my dad. He... You know, was the doctor that was there when my grandmother passed. Like, oh, of was course. He? <laughs> you know, right. And so it's like, cool, yeah. Dr. Shipman, he's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, so every, everybody knows him. He's a household name in this community. Yes. You know, if you have a elderly loved one, they're probably seeing Dr. Shipman at yes, some point. Absolutely. Um, so after this was closed, Dr. Shipman actually went on to kill three more patients until he was completely stopped for good. Wow. Okay. Um, it was reported that since the community loved Dr. Shipman so much, they did not really do the proper investigation. Um, it seemed like it was merely a conversation of, hey, people say you're killing your patients. And Dr. Shipman would say like, well, I treat old people and they're going to die. And he always seemed to be just very dry. (laughs) Well, British. (laughs) You know, he's just dry like toast. (laughs) I mean, he's he's British. The British are known for very dry humor and sometimes, in his case, dry personalities. So I'm only going to talk about the last victim of his just because it is a real big, you know, everything surrounding it. It was a big... A big deal. A big deal, yeah, that she, that what happened and everything that came together that actually was able to stop him. And like I said, still is the good work of the people in the community that looked at something and said, this isn't right, and questioned it when they could have just kept going on. Definitely. So um, this victim's name is Kathleen Grundy. She died in her home on June 24th, 1998. He was the last to see her alive, and there was... Um, witnesses in her neighborhood that was like, yeah, we saw Dr. Shipman there. He walked out of her house doing a uh, house call like he always did. Yeah, routine visit kind of thing. Yes. Um, he signed the death certificate just like he always would. Right. Um, and he did state that her cause of death was old age. Okay. Okay. So they're like, yeah, she was 81 years old. Who's going to question that? Yeah, I mean, she's, it, she's old. <laughs> at 81, it's not like you're going to go run a marathon. So, um, 
A little bit of backstory about Mrs. Grundy. She was very involved in their town. She was one of those ladies that was always throwing luncheons, doing things for the mayor. Right. I mean, she was just out and about. Everybody would see her walking and all that. So it was kind of strange, thinking back, and you put old age, because everybody was like, she never drove a car, she walked everywhere. Like, yeah. she was a young 81 yeah. kind of thing. So, um she had one daughter, her name was Angela, and two grandsons named Richard and Matthew. Now, two days before she died, a local solicitor, which would be a lawyer, okay, and, um, for those that don't know. Yeah, that's not what that's called here. <laughs> Brian Burgess received a crudely typed will from Mrs. Grundy, who was not even a client of his. Right. So that was red flag number one. That Definitely. Um, he was... Excuse me, y'all. Um, informing them that she would be changing her will and that she would be leaving her whole 300,000 pound estate to her doctor. That's Dr. Shipman. That's a lot to leave to a doctor when you red, have red flag number two. I yeah, don't know of anybody that leaves estates to, <laughs> to their treating physician. Well, I mean, I think you, you say that there are people that have left money to like cancer charities and things, if you know, or like. Uh, you know, cancer clinics if their doctor was really good and helping them through and this and that. You know, I could see that. But when that's usually if you like you don't have surviving family. If you've got surviving family, you're gonna leave them something. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So, um they get this, they think it's strange. It's like literally kind of looks I um I have would probably post a picture on our Instagram of it, but it looks like a Western Union typed telegram kind of thing. And it's just out of the blue and weird. Like, I, right. my name's Mrs. Grundy. <laughs> this is my birthday. I want to change my will to this. Good day. <laughs> Signed, Mrs. Right. Grundy. So, eight days after um, they received this later, the same solicitor, Brian, receives another typed letter informing them of Mrs. Grundy's death. And since this was still raising red flags, Brian ended up looking up and finding that she had a daughter named Angela. Right. Um, and he also ends up finding out that Angela is a solicitor herself. So he calls her up and he's like, look, there's some very strange things going on. I don't know if it's a joke, if it's forgery. Are you aware that your mother's passed away? All of this. And so she ends up finding out that her mom really had passed away. Right. And this is how she finds out from this guy. That is crazy. And then she's also like, well, the other strange thing about it, she's like, I'm the one that drew up my mother's will 15 years ago. And so she was like, and it has not been changed and I have possession of it. And so she was like, and because I'm the original one that did it, all changes would to be effective would actually have to go through Angela. Right. Now, here's the, the other flip side of that coin, because I'm curious now. Obviously, she is a lawyer, and there's a process to making a will, mm -hmm. but uh, is it possible, maybe, just because I'm curious, what are the odds that someone could say, if they're a lawyer, oh, well, you know, I was the one that did my mother's will, this, that, and the other, I have it right here, you know, hit the print button on the printer <laughs> about, you know, and hey, here's the will, this is what it is, and in reality, her mother hadn't made a will at all. And the daughter just didn't want her to give her stuff away to whoever. I mean... I mean, that is true. That's that's also a possibility. But I'm assuming there was more to it than that. Otherwise, yeah, it, yeah. it wouldn't have gotten too far. So, Angela's shocked. She's like, I don't know what you're talking about. You're t telling me my mother's dead. You're telling me her will's been changed. And then this doctor, apparently, is going to have her whole estate. And not me and... And her two grandchildren. Right. So at the urging of Brian, he tells Angela, he's like, you need to go to the police and have them open another investigation. Right. Um, and he's like, this is, this is just weird. So she ends up um, contacting the police in the town that she lived in. And they were like, no, contact Greater Manchester. Yeah. You know, all that stuff. So she takes her, she actually lived a couple hours away. So she hires a, her own private investigator and they go to the greater Manchester police. Right. And they decide that their first task needs to, tr needs to be that they need to track down the two per persons who witnessed 
this will that showed up at Brian's office because there was two witness signatures on it. Okay. Okay. So the first one, um, his name is Paul Spencer and he actually worked at the surgery center that Dr. Shipman had. So he was one of his employees. He was one of his employees, but he was, um, you know, he was basically the notary. He had notary rights. Okay. 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 Gotcha. So, um, the second one, I tried for days trying to see if they ever named him. And they still won't say who the second person is that witnessed it. So I don't know if that person's also like decided their identity that they don't want to be tracked down. Yeah. Or what. Um, but anyway, so Mr. Spencer ended up finding out from Angela, you know, when they come to him and he finds out, he's like, yeah, but I didn't know I was witnessing a will. He's like, I was told that I was witnessing a medical authorization document that Mrs. Grundy want, wanted because she needed to have a procedure done. Really? And so they're like, well, you didn't take a look at the document that, you, <laughs> that, that you're you, witnessing, that you're witnessing and all this stuff. And, and so basically ended up saying he's the doctor I work for and it's Dr. Shipman and he's fantastic. Why do I question him? So you're seeing a trend here. This is he's, kind of a pattern. Yeah. yeah he's really, you know, worked these people over in having them trust him a hundred percent. Yeah. And so he was just shocked and upset. He's like, I, I'm so sorry. I would have never, yeah, yeah, never done that. You know, that's not proper practice anyways, but I just assumed, you know, you're going to trust the person that you work for. Well, especially when he's been an upstanding member of the community, all that kind of stuff. You definitely want to make sure that, or you want to feel that you're working for somebody that's a good person. Yes. So, um, at this point, the case ends up on Inspector Stan Edgerton's desk. And Stan was about a couple months away from full retirement from the police. So, he's not okay. really... But they go to him because they're like, look, he's good at closing cases. He's good at finding an answer. They convince him to stay on. They're like, you've got to close this case. Um, so, he ends up being the le- lead investigator investigator and he is the one that personally goes and arrests dr shipman eventually okay um so inspector edgerton he goes he's looking through files he sees hey a few months ago an investigation was opened um and so that's where he ended up starting and so he went to frank massey he owned frank massey and son's funeral home and this is where um a lot of his patients came they were the number one funeral home in the area so everybody everybody went through there yeah for you know having their body prepared and yeah one-stop shop cremations burial the whole nine yards yeah so he goes to him because he sees that frank was actually him and his daughter were actually one of the ones that gave a statement basically saying that they also had noticed that there was a lot of deaths coming from dr shipman and his patients and his daughter particularly noticed that um, a lot of the deaths were always ladies, never right. men. They were not previously ill, so they weren't like dying of cancer, terminally ill. Sudden deaths. Right. Um, and they would always be found at home fully dressed. Right. Never in bed. Always in a living room chair. That's a okay. very strange coincidence that all of these women would mm-hmm. die in the same way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're going to see it firsthand because when the coroner gets done, the coroner calls the funeral home and says, okay, you can come pick up the body. So they pick it up just as it was. Right. And so um, Mr. Massey of the funeral home ends up telling Inspector Edgerton that he had confronted Dr. Shipman right. about his concerns. And he said it was the just strangest thing that Dr. Shipman was calm he showed no emotion. He pulled out his registrar book, which is where he writes down all of his patients, kind of like um, the book of all the death certificates. So not like a like an appointment calendar. Right. Um, and says, well, if I recorded it that somebody died, that, um, you know, anybody can come and look at it. It's all yeah. right here. Like, there's nothing for me to hide right and so of course mr massey and his daughter come to find out they're actually patients of dr shipman so they're like that's what my doctor says he's totally telling me the truth well yeah yeah so they're like who who are we to question it the good doctor oh lord <laughs> okay 
So, and as the investigation went on, some people believed it was possible that Dr. Shipman knew he would be caught soon, and that is why he wanted the estate money from uh, from Mrs. Grundy. Inspector Edgerton did not believe that. Okay. He thought Dr. Shipman was full of himself and thought he was getting away and that he was outsmarting everybody in the community, including the police. So this particular inspector is like, he's not getting, getting you know... Charmed. worried or anything like that you know he's you know he's like this this guy he, it's not like he made a mistake because he was worried right all right he just made a mistake because he's full of himself mm-hmm. so at this time they felt as though they had enough um information just based on mrs grundy's case right. that they would be able to exhume her body okay and they're like we need to get this body back out and take a look at it and see what's going on because Old age just doesn't seem like it's really so, matching and, and up. And she, she was buried. Yes. Yeah, so this actually, one month after she was buried, they end up exhuming her body. Okay. So I know because you said earlier, a lot of them were cremated. So mm-hmm. that's probably one of the nails in the coffin on this one, so to speak. And that is um, also why they ended up getting enough cases. They had 15. And I think they just kept it at that because that was long enough. Th- that was enough right there to nail him. You know, to make for, sure that... For years, yeah. decades yeah. of jail, yeah. So, um, Inspector Edgerton reported saying that this was one of the worst nights of his career. He said just the logistics alone of making sure that they have the right body, the right plot, that the... Well, I mean, it's got a stone over it. That the fam- Well, at that time, you know, sometimes it takes a while to get the stone out there. But he said just anyways, they, I guess how they bury them, some of them can be in... The stones will be really close to together, and they don't want to disturb the other body that's there. And they actually have they actually had to let the other people's families that were around them that they would be exhuming a body near them as well. Really? Oh mm-hmm. wow! Okay, so there's a lot that goes into exhuming a body. Yes. Then. They and then he said also in the UK they require that it all be done at night. Well, of course, because you know creepy graveyard at nighttime is just the way you do things. So legally. he's like, you know families there and they just want to be as respectful as possible um so while this was all going on edgerton actually obtained a warrant and had a team put together to search dr shipman's practice and home and they were particularly looking for this typewriter right they felt as though he still had in his possession um that was the one to forge this will so they're thinking he he hand typed up this will yeah for himself and had her sign it yes Yes, um, and so Dr. Shipman offered up the typewriter, actually, while really? they're searching his house. He ends up saying, oh, yeah, I have a typewriter right here. And so offers it up to them willingly. They end up taking the typewriter, the will, and samples from Mrs. Grundy's body to the forensic science lab. It was quickly found, like within a couple of days of testing, that the typewriter had been used on the paper of the will that same typewriter so it was definitely the typewriter that typed out that will yes they know for sure that he was the one that wrote that will yes absolutely so while all that was happening as well this taxi driver from the town ends up coming forward and his name is john shaw right okay um and so he's like i have got to meet with inspector edgerton and he was like meets down with him he says I've actually suspected Dr. Shipman of murdering 21 patients myself. Really? He's like, I've been keeping a log of it for the last two years. Okay. A taxi driver. A taxi driver. He says that he became suspicious because when elderly people that he would pick up and take to their doctor's appointments, um, they would go in and see Dr. Shipman and never come out. So this is where it comes into where he was killing them at his practice as well. Wow. Like there would be, he would like, see and it was always ladies right and he would be talking to them they're like yeah i'm going in for my follow-up or whatever and gonna get checked out and then all of a sudden we'd be like oh well they passed away they had a heart attack so basically these ladies are going in there completely healthy mm-hmm. and the taxi driver could tell and uh-huh. then all of a sudden they're dead yeah. yeah and if it happens once or twice you know sad coincidence but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 20 times 21 that's that's a yes. lot of death so here's the here's the trend coming again. When asked why he did not come forward sooner, 
Shaw stated that his wife did not want him wrongly accusing the well-respected doctor. And then... <laughs> you know, well, and again, I can see where the wife is coming from, because if he's a well-known and respected doctor, and her husband is yep. only a lowly taxi driver, that could ruin his reputation and his business. Yeah. Because I believe taxi drivers... Uh, I know in, in the in the States, like in New York back in the day, taxi drivers, you had to have a medallion and you were your own business. So if it if that's yeah. the way it was in the UK, then yeah, you know, if he loses his credibility, that's it. Yeah, I imagine. So so with this, um, Inspector Edgerton felt as though that he had enough to get a warrant to exhume more bodies. Left. <laughs> At this time, they got their results back on Mrs. Grundy, and they end up finding out that she had traces of heroin or diamorphine, which is often used to treat terminal patients with pain. It's basically a mix of morphine. It's the highest powerful morphine, and it's actually what you can um, overdose on rather quickly. So it's like a it's a blended yes kind of solution of morphine and other stuff. Yes. So when questioned, Doctor Shipman said Grundy. Um, he said, well, Mrs. Grundy had actually been addicted um, to heroin, and I was trying to assist her. She had been addicted for years, and I was helping her maintain her addiction on a safe level. So he would come to her house, what he would say, and give her her fix in a controlled setting. An 81-year-old woman. An 81-year-old woman. Okay. So, you know her daughter's probably thinking, what the hell? Yeah. My mom was not addicted to heroin. That doesn't make any sense. And really looking at it, he was getting these patients addicted. So he would get patients addicted to morphine mm -hmm. and then extort them. Yes. So also at this meeting, Dr. Shipman ends up saying, well, it's all on my computer. So Inspector Edgerton says, well, great. I got a warrant for that computer and I'm going to be taking it in my possession. And there so this was, you know, 1998 medical records are starting to be put on computers and things like that. And so, oh boy, the computers of the nineties. Yeah, so they um, start looking and found these notes where Dr. Shipman had gone in and amended not only Mrs. Grundy, but several patients where he was going in and um, like, because it was leaving an imprint that they could look on the hard drive of the computer and being like, oh, well this note, it was time stamped that it was originally written on this date, and then he would go in and amend it, and things would be completely missing that were on there before. Gotcha, yeah. But, well, and that's, mm -hmm. that's the nature of the old-school disk drives, yeah. So they even found um, that he had been going in and changing the cause of deaths to match his notes, and some notes were completely deleted to make the death certificates match what he had said. Um, some, they were finding that he had been listing patients deceased, deceased days or weeks before they actually passed away. Really? Yeah. So almost like he had planned to kill them and it just mm -hmm. didn't happen yeah. because the dose wasn't high enough or whatever. So he had to amend it to, oh, they're not dead yet. Yes. So this next part, it goes pretty quickly about, you know, what ended up happening next. But they decided to look at the last few months and they see that Dr. Shipman alone had signed 36 death certificates. In the last how long? Two months. Two months. 36. So that's, that's one every two days. Yeah. Basically, more than one every two days, yeah. technically. So, on September 7th, 1998, Shipman was finally arrested. Wow. They ended up coming at night, knocked on his door, had the whole team there, guns drawn, ready to take him. And he, they said, the look on his face was like, he actually was like, oh crap, I was caught. Like, <laughs> he thought he had all these interviews, he was like... He was so surprised. He was, you know charming them and they just thought he was winning right um so at this time he was charged with 15 counts of murder by lethal injection forgery and falsifying medical records between 1996 and 1998 dr shipman had signed 119 death certificates for women over the age of 65 alone that is a lot so here is here are the list of women that he was charged with the, the final 15. Marie West, Irene Turner, Lizzie Adams, Jean Lilly, Ivy Lomas, Meryl Grimshaw, uh, Mary Quinn, Kathleen Wagstaff, Blinka Promfett, Nora Nuttall, Pamela 
Hillier, Maureen Ward, Winifred Meller, Joan Milia, and Kathleen Grundy. And I apologize if I butchered any of those names. <laughs> yeah, we, we mean no disrespect, but... <laughs> Absolutely. So those 15 women were mm-hmm. the 15 last victims mm-hmm. of... Yeah, so this, they were able to have the most evidence on these where it came to, like, the computer records, the medical records, right, true, the death true. certificates, all of that. So ha- that computer actually really helped. <laughs> so, but to, to put that in perspective, because I, I want to make sure I'm hearing this right. Mm-hmm. If that was the last 15 victims, that means out of the five years that he was active as a killer, mm-hmm. this, in, this encompassed the last month. That he was killing. Yeah. Essentially. Two, two to one month, yeah. Because the last two months they said he had 36 yeah. total across yeah. two months. Yeah, that's true. So that's the, basically the last month that he was killing people yeah. was those 15 women. Um, Which means his five-year career, easily, yeah, 250 plus is not unreasonable considering right. what he was able to a- a- accomplish, if you will. I don't mean to And I think that's why they say, it. like, they're pretty sure he was doing these things in the 70s. In the late seventies, when he be when after when he became an attending, but there's just no record of it. Well, it's like I said, you know, they're not big on records exactly. there. Exactly. But you know, yeah, the digital age is what kind of did him. Yeah. In. Doctor Shipman's trial began on our anniversary, honey, October fifth, nineteen ninety nine. Well, not of ninety nine. <laughs> that's on our anniversary, but at the Preston Crown Court, his trial went on until. January 25th, 2000, and that's when the deliberations began. So they deliberated for about six days, um, which I'm actually surprised it took them it that took long. It took six days to decide um, that he was a murderer? But yeah, on January 31st, 2000, the jury found Shipman guilty on all 15 counts and one count of forgery. Here's the thing. I'd like to point out, I, we've been talking about this now for about 45 minutes. And we don't even have any concrete evidence in front of us of... Like, oh, here's all the records of the things that he did. Mm-hmm. We're just talking about it. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, no, he definitely killed those 15 women. Yeah. Plus hundreds more. Yeah. Like, I, why would it take six days? Yeah, I don't know. The judge sentenced Shipman ship. <laughs> <laughs> to a life imprisonment on all 15 counts without parole and to be served concurrently with the added four years of the forgery, forgery charge. <laughs> so... Hang on, he's got 15 life sentences, mm-hmm. and how long for the forgery? Four years. Oh, well, that's just you the know, cherry just on top. Just the cherry. Yeah, mm-hmm. just just to top it off. Um, So, Shipman, and I'm not calling him doctor anymore because he's been stripped of that right. <laughs> yeah. Time. But he consistently has denied his guilt, dis- he disputing, saying that there wasn't any scientific real evidence against him, which is not true. Aside um, from all the death and killing yeah. and, you know, science. His yeah. wife, Primrose, maintained her husband's innocence even after his conviction. And to this day, Shipman is actually the only doctor in British medicine to ever be found guilty of murdering his patients. So he's he's one of a kind in now, the UK. Now, to be found guilty. There have been several that have been arrested and gone to trial, but they've all been acquitted, not... For one reason or another, right. yeah. Um, and especially, I can guarantee, like, a lot of those, it starts out as, like, a medical malpractice type of thing, and they uh, decide to say, oh, you know, we can try them for murder. But in reality, yeah, I accidents mean, do on. happen. You were shooting your patients up with high doses of morphine and Demerol and whatever else you could get, and, like, getting them addicted. And then, apparently, whenever he decided that he was done with that, he would do one last house call and overdose them. And then just say, oh, well, they died because they're yep, old. They died at home. So his wife... Mm-hmm. Which, she... by the way, I encourage everybody to look up a picture of her. <laughs> she was absolutely skinny and beautiful when they got married. Oh, she did not age well. The years were not kind. They were not kind. You know what? Uh, when this episode, once this episode is live, we'll actually have to post a picture of her mm-hmm. and some other pertinent pictures and stuff from like the... Uh, the like there's some pictures of her from the trial and stuff <laughs> it's like ooh honey yeah <laughs> so things like that and then like the uh we'll have to post that on the yeah. instagram so that everybody can see it so unfortunately he took the coward's way out and he hung himself in his cell on uh january 13 2004 
at 6.20 a.m. And it was the eve of his 58th birthday. So he's not even, like, he, he, how long was he in prison then? So he was convicted on January 31st, 2000. So he had just, like, four years, right at, almost at the four-year mark. So he served less than his forgery charge Uh before he committed suicide. Yeah. So he was pronounced dead at 8.10 a.m. Wasn't because of old age. (laughs) Wouldn't that have been hilarious? Um, How did he die, old age? So Don't worry about the news, it's fine. (laughs) They, um, his body actually was released to his family, but they were told that because it was still so soon after his trial and the trial, it was such a media circus and... You know, by that time, everybody in the country, I'm sure, hated oh, him. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. And so they were like, he either needs to be cremated or something. So they ended up, the family chose to pay to have him held in a freezer until 2005 when they finally decided just to cremate him. Right. And, um, didn't hold a service or anything like that because they were afraid of protesters and all that, which... Who doesn't deserve a service? (laughs) How long was he on ice? Um, A year. A year. So they kept him frozen for a year Mm -hmm. to avoid people desecrating his body, I'm assuming. Mm -hmm. Or his grave, any of that. Well. Yeah. Or finding out that they were having a service and then protesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. So they didn't ever really find a proper motive, which, who cares? But... A prison guard a few years later ended up coming forward saying that um, Harold had told him that he was considering suicide um, so his wife could get his pension because I didn't really understand the logistics of it, but he had this pension that he was entitled to, but if he lived to 60, his wife wouldn't be, wouldn't be able to draw it. Okay. So I guess he just like, she ended up getting the pension because he died before age 60, even so, though he was a convicted murderer. <laughs> how, like, a pension from who? From where? It was, um, I don't know. It didn't stay, actually, in my research. It just, and I even wrote that down here. It literally just said he had a pension that as his wife could, could draw on it if he now, died before age 60. So I don't know if maybe that was something that he had... Well, because normally, I mean, here at least in the U.S., a pension would require would would mean something along the lines of like a uh, a retirement fund or a a lot of times like a business. Uh, what's the word I want to use here? Like a, like a job that you had with a retirement plan. Mm-hmm. You know, where after you pass or after you retire, you continue to get paid. Yeah. Which I'm like, considering he's a convicted murderer, I don't care who he was working for nobody should honor yeah, that absolutely you know but i'm also wondering if it's like a social security kind of thing like in the u.s where everyone just has social security that could be it after a certain age mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and that would be why you know here in the u.s if you die before you can claim social security then your spouse can mm-hmm so that might be it that might be it so of course after his arrest conviction and then suicide um definitely what they called the shipman effect came into play and this was the uk coming in and changing a lot of things about medical records and how they're kept and how they're kept on computers and the time stamping and you know, signature approvals and things like that. Basically that there would be, if a doctor amends something else, there is a checks and balance of it so that they can be like, somebody else can question it in a way and review it. The entire country changed how they catalog and track medicine in general Mm -hmm. because of one man. Yeah. That is insane. Yeah, absolutely. But So that is the story of Dr. Shipman. And I definitely encourage all, if you want to look more into it, there's so much information on him Um, and other victims, kids and spouses and stuff have come out and, and, you know, told their story on it and kind of how they were all tricked and bamboozled and by his, his charm and everything about him. Yeah. And And I know like, as far as like true crime goes, you know, this, 
this particular story, it well, it, it's a very, I don't want to say plain, but it's not a very graphic story. It's not, you know, mm-hmm. horrifying. But the fact is, is that you have to really consider that this is a man who was trusted and loved by an entire community, mm-hmm. all right, to the point that he murdered hundreds of people across a couple of years, maybe five to ten years, guesstimate, you know, if not longer, maybe 10 to 15, 20 years. But he murdered hundreds of women without a care in the world. Yep. And no one thought twice. Nope. That puts almost every serial killer you could ever imagine to shame because they, I can't think of a single other serial killer that has even come close to 200 plus victims. And definitely, you know, you're taught, I think, as a child. And some of this is changing now because of the the police reform movement and things. But, you know, you're taught as a child that you can trust your doctor, you can trust a policeman, you know, all these pillars in our community that keep us safe and keep us healthy and, yeah. you know, to trust them and that they'll do no harm to you. And so I think that was definitely how he was able to come in and do the damage that he did. But I do have a question for you before we end. So do you think he was more of a nature or nurture that played into what he ended up becoming in life? So the that's kind of tough because obviously it depends on what his mindset was, which he never really explained. My first thought is obviously he saw his mother struggling with cancer and taking years to pass. And I really feel that when he was a child, you know, a teenager, if you will, because I, I assume he was an, a teenager when his mother passed. Yeah, he was 17. I feel mm-hmm. that maybe he was trying to be <laughs> a, you know, angel of mercy. Yeah. You know, when... And that's actually one of his nicknames. Yeah, and I mm-hmm. feel like that might be part of it. Like, he wanted to be that angel of mercy to, you know, the older generation. Mm-hmm. And uh, I feel like... That could be one way you go with it, and that would definitely fall under nature. Yeah. Or under nurture, I mean. Mm-hmm. But the other side of it is, in general, to charm these old women into being addicted to heroin, or morphine in this case, and then using that charm and that ability to... Ab- essentially get them to hand over all of their assets, all of their financials to you upon their passing, whenever that may be. Cough, cough. We don't know when that could ever be next week. And then to just overdose them and kill them. Yeah. That, to me, speaks volumes to the fact that he didn't have, especially with his calm demeanor, he had zero regrets or feelings as to these murders. He didn't care definitely sociopath (laughs) like he didn't have that emotional thing you know that that most of us have but so yeah absolutely just and that's why i think like if you'd like to do some more research on him anybody you know look him up encourage because there's so much out there but i couldn't find anything else about his childhood but i do think there's something that happened and we'll probably never know just because he also, he hung himself. And so, like, he never did any interviews or anything and never stated anything about his life. And so. Never got a book deal. No. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, which has become a, incredibly popular, apparently. But, yeah, you know. But, uh, yeah, that is that is the story of him. So. Dr. Harold Shipman. Yep. That is quite the tale because you never... May he never rest in peace, and may his marinara never stick to his pasta. There you go. There's <laughs> never been a better way to put it. Oh. But, yeah. Well, I think that that was incredibly... It, I, don't, I don't even want to call it informative, but it, that was disturbing. Like I said, I think if I had really gone in... You know, probably would have taken me weeks and would have been a five-parter. And we're like, here's the deaths from 1970, 1980, 19... Yeah. And it, we just would have been count- well, going on. So. And if we counted every suspected death attributed to him yeah. in, in the UK, I mean, we're talking, yeah. you know, hundreds and hundreds mm-hmm. of people, you know. And that's that's the most disturbing part to me is that he 
even though you don't want him to, he's left a legacy of, you know, of death in his wake. Yeah. And so, but that being said, I feel as though we th- this story has definitely run its course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, uh... I know in upcoming episodes, we've got some cool stuff coming up in the next few weeks. Yes, uh, yes. Please subscribe. Follow us on Instagram. Give us a review. Let us know if there's something out there that you want us to cover um, or look into. Cause yeah. Because we're always open. There's a lot of spooky shit out there. So <laughs> Yeah. So y'all, uh, everybody out there, check the show notes for more links and more information. Uh, check the Instagram for the photos that are up about uh, this case. And uh, if you have any other questions, comments, concerns, ideas, thoughts, post them there. And uh, we'll get to them as soon as we can. Bye, y'all. And thanks for listening to... The Girl. The Beard. And The Grim. Bye, y'all. Bye, y'all. <laughs>